0: You are listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 25th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster and on today's show... If I had not been elected President of the
1: United States, we would right now, in my opinion, be in a major war with North Korea.
0: U.S. President Donald Trump prepares for Wednesday's historic summit in Vietnam with the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Is the Korean Peninsula any closer to denuclearization? International criticism for the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu after he enters an electoral pact with an ultra-nationalist extremist party. My guests Pippa Margrum and Geoffrey Howard will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Extend Article 50 or face a messy exit, the latest warning from the EU to the UK as British Prime Minister Theresa May fights to break the Brexit deadlock. And he's taken a train for the Vietnam summit. But how will Kim Jong Un pass the 60 hour journey between Pyongyang and Hanoi? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliette Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Pippa Malgram. She's the co-founder of H-Robotics and a former economics advisor to George W. Bush when he was US president. And Geoffrey Howard, who's a lecturer in political theory at University College London. Welcome both of you to the programme. Now, the US President Donald Trump says North Korea could become one of the world's great nuclear powers, his words, not mine, if it abandons nuclear weapons. Now, his comments, which appeared on Twitter, come just two days before he's due to meet the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in the Vietnamese capital Hanoi. It's the second time they'll meet. Last year, they signed an agreement in Singapore, which was criticised for being vague. Since then, progress has stalled, with both sides disagreeing over what the agreement actually meant. So will the Hanoi talks produce anything substantive? Pippa, what I find fascinating is that the way that Donald Trump has been talking about the meeting in Hanoi, he appears to be reining back expectations, which stands in contrast to what he said last year in the run-up to the Singapore summit.
2: Yeah, but what he's not doing is reining back the expectation for a deal in the end. And probably he's right to emphasize that it's a deal really between Xi Jinping and Donald Trump more than it is with the North Koreans. In fact, it's really China and the United States that are orchestrating the normalization of relations on the Korean Peninsula. And um, even the other Parties like the Japanese, the South Koreans initially kind of felt like, hey, wait, we haven't even been consulted on this. But the Chinese view and the American view is, hey, listen, if we solve this nuclear issue, then what are you going to do? Complain? So it's really about Xi Jinping and President Trump wanting to have their victory over this issue. Well, that's an
0: interesting interpretation. It's got nothing to do with North Koreans. It's all about the Chinese leader. And Donald Trump, would you go along with that, Jeffrey?
1: Well, I absolutely think that's right. But of course, even with enormous pressure from China, there's only so much we've learned that China has been able to get North. Korea to do. So appeasing some of Kim's demands is going to be important here. So what does Kim want? Well, it looks like he wants relief of sanctions from the UN. Um, China might be in a position to be able to make some movement on that issue if only they decide with the Trump administration to to pursue that. Um, Kim clearly is keen to get some kind of agreement that the Korean War has ended. That looks like there's some possibility that Trump um, and the North Korean regime might come to the decision that we're going to declare that the war has finally ended. Mm, because it
0: was an armistice before or something. It's an armistice without the formal declaration. Yeah. That's so technically exactly they're right. both at war. So
1: even though fighting ended in 1953, technically the war has what been... Well, a verbal war. It's, it's, and this would this would be a huge public relations payoff. There's also been talk about possibly setting up some liaison offices between Pyongyang and Washington DC, not formal embassies, but a nudge in that direction. But really, for Kim, it is about the sanctions.
0: Mm, but but from from a, a sceptic's point of view, Pippa, you could argue that Kim can afford to say, "Yep, we're not fighting the Americans anymore. We're going to declare an end to the war. I've still got my nuclear weapons." <laughs>
2: Yeah. Well, again, I come back to really this is about, I think, China saying we'll deal with this nuclear issue and then what we'd like is to have greater uh, influence, let's call it that, over North Korea. And so Kim Jong-un is really jockeying for does he get to stay once the deal is cut at all? You know, And so he's looking for the Americans to help him with the Chinese on that front. But from a Chinese point of view, look, the, there's a real possibility here that they're going to be effectively acquiring the last least expensive labor force on the whole planet. You know, the last injection of cheap labor exists in North Korea, and no one else has the time or patience to deal with teaching that population how to be part of a labor force.
0: Because the Chinese are noted for their patience in playing well, the long game.
2: I have to say they are. They are. I remember once, and this is slightly an aside, but once having a fascinating discussion uh, with Helmut Schmidt, the former Chancellor of Germany, because you know he oversaw the reunification or prepared the groundwork for the reunification of East and West Germany, but he had advise the South Koreans on the possibility of North and South Korea. And he always said what nobody's understood is that population can't be integrated in the world economy the way that East Germans could. Because at least East Germans understood you wake up in the morning, mm. you go to work, you get a paycheck, and you buy a beer with it on the way home. This is not the situation in North Korea. So most of the parties kind of look at this as China doing the world a favor to mm. deal with this population. And if Trump gets some credit for that, they're kind of like wincing, but okay. But that, but that's quite an interesting interpretation again. Game because it sort of bleeds into
0: the trade agreements, if you like, between Trump and the Chinese. Because he's actually said that we've had some very good agreements, and yes, great things are happening. So is there a sense that he's talking about one thing, but behind the scenes, his his negotiators and the Chinese mean something entirely different? In other words, look, you know, China will give you some nice optics with North Korea, but in return lay off the tariffs.
1: I I think that's exactly right. And I think it's all related. I mean, for Trump, ultimately, it isn't about policy. It's about the politics. It's about Mm. the appearance. It's about being able to come home and say to his base, I have this victory. I've done this great achievement here. We've beaten China in this trade war. We've gotten this great deal with North Korea. And so long as he gets those optics, Trump will be happy. Now, his, his team actually wants to find concrete steps. And so Secretary Pompeo, the Secretary of State, has made it very clear that he's not willing to support the relief of any sanctions whatsoever until we have full verified denuclearization on the korean peninsula um but i think trump's probably willing to go um to be a bit more flexible than that and so as with most public policy issues we might even be seeing some disagreements within the trump administration yeah, about and, and how let, to move forward and, here
0: and let's pick up on that the idea of of the disagreements because just looking at the tweets and the comments the comments from the likes of mike pompeo i mean he appears to be saying one thing that, look, you know, the North Koreans, they are a nuclear danger. Trump appears to be saying, well, actually, you know, they're not too much of a danger. Everything's kind of under control. Then you've got John Bolton saying, oh, you know, you're sort of giving away bits and pieces. So the inference being, sort of, go at the guy with um, with a hammer, a stick, whatever. I mean, how united... Is, is this foreign policy team or,
2: or in the t- department generally? Well, you know how everybody keeps saying that there's been a breakdown of process in the West Wing? Yeah, this would reflect this breakdown uh, in all process. All right, so there is. <laughs> you know, this is normally what happens, you know, having worked there, normally what happens is the special assistance to the president on the National Security Council, on the National Economic Council, you basically vet the issues that are going to go up to the president. And you find the ones that really need an answer right now. And then you figure out where everybody stands and you find we're all aligned except for these three points. And then you try to hammer out those differences. And ultimately, you're going to present to the president literally a half-page memo because that's the max you're going to get no matter how complicated the issue is. Just for this particular
0: president or for presidents per se. For all
2: presidents, (laughs) you get half a page max. One paragraph is better. And you need to present three positive options. This process isn't how this White House works. And so we hear this in every different category of, of work over there. It's not just this area. It's it's everything. You're hearing conflicting messages and and, and it's a function of the way this president operates. Oh, dear.
0: But look, it, it, it looks dysfunctional, but he could argue, look, it's just go beyond the optics because... It's working.
2: Well, I have to say, I agree. And this is the thing that people are underestimate. He feels his whole purpose is effectively to burn down the U.S. government, right? That's the drain, <laughs> the swamp. Take it away. speaking. Well, I'm not even <laughs> sure it's metaphorical. I mean, if he could light a match. Are, are, I, are
0: you telling me there's a box of swamp vestus in the, <laughs> in what the situation I'm saying room? <laughs>
2: is if he, anything he can do to make the government smaller and less effective is, from his point of view, definitely a victory. And to be fair, there are a lot of Americans who agree with that view, who do think that Washington has become bloated, overgrown, and they want the power moved back to the state level. So when you say the White House is dysfunctional, he's like, yeah, excellent. But but
0: look what it's achieving. And, And I guess the point that comes out of this, Jeffrey, is that like him or hate him, and particularly the way that he approaches the business of government in terms of this issue, America's relationship with North Korea, things will never be the same again even if he loses in 2020, because he set a path, he's actually got this reclusive state talking to the West.
1: Absolutely. And while I certainly don't agree with him that there would be a, a new uh, be a new war right now where Hillary Clinton, the president, which he suggested the <laughs> other day, uh, I don't agree with him that there'd be a war with North Korea. You can't deny that there's been movement on this issue, um, movement that previous administrations weren't able to achieve. Um, now, I don't know if it's just the fact that a broken clock is right twice a day um, or that, you know, he, maybe the president actually deserves some, some credit here. Um, despite all the bluster, it's had some effect in, in getting Kim talking. And that, that's got to be a good thing for world peace.
2: Well, I think well, it's partly a function of his negotiating style. See, normally what a president would do is send the defense negotiators to deal with the defense nuclear issue and separately send the trade negotiators to deal with, say, China on the trade issue. He takes everything and throws it all onto the table. So I think you're right to raise the possibility when he says we're making progress, what he's really meaning is the progress with China on the North Korean issue will allow me to then back off on the trade hostility with China. Because for him, it's all interconnected. Mm. Nothing is separate. But governments are not used to negotiating this way. U.S. governments, by the way, I think the Chinese are very comfortable negotiating like this. They like this style where everything is up for discussion. Okay then. So let's move on now to the Middle East. And the
0: Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is under fire after entering an electoral pact with a party of ultra-nationalist extremists. It was Mr Netanyahu who oversaw a merger between Jewish power and the group Jewish Home, whose leaders want a ban on sex and marriage between Jews and Arabs. That's just part of it. US pro-Israeli groups, which have supported the Prime Minister during his 13 years in power, have condemned the move, although Mr Netanyahu is unrepentant. He says the deal is a way of forming a right-wing coalition in readiness for elections in April. Before we take a look at his new coalition partners, Geoffrey, let's look at Mr Netanyahu's situation because it has to be pretty desperate and surely he must feel as if his feet are burning in the flames if he has to go into a coalition with these two parties because... They are led by some not very nice people.
1: Yeah, Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, between a rock and a hard place. He's facing some pretty serious corruption charges. He's facing some pretty serious political challenges. Uh, Benny Gantz, who's this former army chief, he's very much a centrist, poses a a, a pretty s- serious, probably mortal political threat um, to Benjamin Netanyahu in terms of his political prospects moving forward. So I think this, this reeks of desperation um, on Benjamin Netanyahu's part um, and so the fact that he's willing um, to uh, become politically entangled with people that that the U.S. group APAC, um, the prominent uh, Israeli lobby in the U.S., has declared as reprehensible tells us a lot, I think.
0: Yeah, and, and Pipa. I mean, look, I referred to one aspect of this alliance and what it's calling for, but it's much worse than that. Even I was shocked mm. at some of the things which have come out of their mouths. I mean, homophobia for example, along with other things?
2: Yeah, well, what I find really disturbing too is this is part of a more global trend. Everywhere in the world, we're seeing uh, the incumbent political leaders lose their footing and start to reach out wherever they can to the extremes on both sides Uh, And I think this is a function of the new populism. And one of the things the new populism is about is saying we don't want the old guard. We want a new category of people. Look at the last U.S. congressional elections, for Mm. example. Something like a one-third of all the new members have never worked in politics before. Right? The public is dying for people who Mm. are outside the system. And it replicates what was happening in France as well with Mr. Macron's movement. Yep. And it's both directions, hard right and hard left. And what it is, is the old guard are, are suddenly realizing they've lost their foothold on power and they scramble to reach for something to hang on to far right or far left. But the real story is the public is now saying, but we really want somebody new. So the, mm. the, the, the desperation element reflects the fact that the public... Wants change, not the fact that the public wants to move to the hard right, mm. but that the politician thinks they can last longer by doing sure. this. It's like a drowning person, you know, reaching for a person to buoy them up. Yeah, yeah. Even
0: if the person is drowning. But mm. the, the thing about this, Jeffrey, is that it is extraordinary because we know that there are Jewish communities around the world and in Europe in particular. We've seen an upsurge in anti Semitism. And the real concern that many commentators would have is that this marriage, for want of a better term, actually feeds some of those extreme groups in Europe with ammunition, which they
1: can use to undermine the position of, of Jewish groups who are already feeling really frightened. <laughs> a lot of people have been telling themselves for a long time um, that Benjamin Netanyahu is in, is in favour of a two-state solution, and they believed him when mm. in the past he said it. But I think in recent years, um, it's become only a pretense. And lately, he's not even using that particular term. He's not calling for a two-state solution. And when he signs up with a party who has encouraged violence against Palestinians, who has advocated for the expulsion of Arabs from Israel and from the territories, who's advocated for bans on intermarriage between Jews and Arabs, we can only um, lead to the... we can only embrace the conclusion that this is clearly not the man who's going to lead toward any kind of sensible peace process. So he could
0: effectively embolden far-right extremists who are attacking Jewish communities, living in Europe, living in other parts of the world, who have nothing to do with this. They're just the innocent bystanders.
1: I think that's exactly right. And I think certainly in the context of of Israel and the territories, um, this must be quite depressing news for the Palestinians. Of course, if it leads to his loss, because a lot of people in Israel are bound to be very upset about this and will say that this is hostile to the values Mm. that they affirm as Israelis. Uh, And so he may inadvertently end up helping Benny Gantz and the centrists. uh, uh, And that's the point, because
0: I've never really seen the,
1: the conservative and
0: liberal wing of, of Jewish society actually come together on a shared consensus but this marriage appears to have done that Pippa
2: well, and again, if I step back and I look at the global stage, the desire for more bipartisan results, the desire for reaching across uh, to one's formerly political opponent, I think is on the rise. I think people are feeling quite exhausted and frightened by the separatism that has dominated mm. in recent years, the, the moves to the extremes. And i I'm a little bit, I mean, I'm not uh, encouraged by this particular event, but I am encouraged, as you say, by the public reaction Maybe you know what, let's get people who talk to each other. Let's go back to the middle a little bit. Let's go back to a more reasonable Mm -hmm. position. One of the things that has been an interesting side effect of populism has been a massive uptick in the level of interest in political affairs. You know, I mean, you're teaching students. You know, I got students who are like, hey, can we come out, hang out with you on Friday night to talk politics? And I'm like, Friday night? You have nothing better to do. I like, got <laughs> a 20-year-old, they want to hang out with me to talk about politics. Actually, shows you've got street cred. Well, <laughs> but, you know, it's cool because the answer is yes, they want to be engaged. So I'm not saying it was a good way to get to political mm. engagement. But one of the side effects of populism is it has caused enormous political engagement. And I can't say that's a bad thing. Sure. And,
0: and I mean, we've had the international reaction. You talked about this this group, American Israel Public Affairs Committee, AIPAC. Now, they've described the Jewish uh, p- Power Party as racist and reprehensible. To put this into context, how unusual is it for this, a group like that to speak out? And would it make any difference?
1: It's quite shocking. I mean, APEC has been very supportive of Netanyahu in the past. Um, in recent years, uh, Israel has started to become a partisan issue in the United States. In past years, it was very much regarded as a bipartisan issue. But I think, and here I think a lot of the blame lies with the Republicans. The Republicans have done a lot to make it an issue um, for their party. Um, now, APEC as a result, has been in recent years regarded as more inclined to be associated with Republicans, although it certainly has relationships with Democratic donors. It is a powerful organization. It is an influential organization. Um, it's an influential organization because Americans care about Israel, because a lot of Americans think mm. that um, Israel should be regarded as this lone outpost of democracy in the Middle East. Um, and as a result of that, I think the fact that APAC, even APAC, is calling it reprehensible, I think is going to shock a lot of people. And it will mean that a lot of the money that comes into Israel from Israeli donors might dry up, American donors. Very
2: briefly. Remember, too, something's happening in the background that's very new and different, and that's the alignment of interests between Saudi and Israel. Yes. And I do think there are lots of Israelis who think that actually that might be a very good development worth protecting, and this direction Netanyahu's taking maybe would Mm, disrupt that. that. Mm.
0: Sure. OK, then, so some sound thoughts on which to end this part of the programme. But you're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, my guests Pippa Malgram and Geoffrey Howard. Now, coming up next, extend Article 50 or face a messy exit. That's the latest warning from the EU to the UK as the British Prime Minister Theresa May fights to break the Brexit deadlock. <music>
1: What is it like to be a city forgotten and rediscovered? Monocle Films travels to Gunsan in South Korea to bear witness to its urban revival. Here, natives and newcomers are creating quirky bars, art spaces and a bright future for this charming coastal outpost. Gunsan, building on the past, playing now in the film section at monocle.com.
0: You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Pippa Pippa Mulgren, so sorry I mispronounced your name there, and Geoffrey Howard. I was doing really well up until that point. Now, let's move on because there are 32 days left, 32 before the UK leaves the European Union. And for the British Prime Minister Theresa May, the political stakes are getting higher Donald Tusk, the EU Council President believes Mrs May won't get her Brexit deal through Parliament and that Britain risks a chaotic Brexit or chaotic exit, I should say, from the bloc. However, the Prime Minister is optimistic she can find a way to rally MPs behind her, even though the odds appear to be against her. While well, the solution favoured by Mr Tusk is extending Article 50, which would extend Britain's European Union membership beyond the March the 29th deadline when the country is supposed to exit the EU. Confused, you won't But, um, Pippa, look, Mr. Tusk's suggestion on the surface looks sensible because it would give Britain more time to clarify the relationship it wants with Europe in the post-Brexit world. But if you're a Brexiteer, I would imagine that your toes are curling on that because they might well turn around and say, of course you want an extension. It's a way of keeping us in this union by default.
2: Oh, and it's not only that, too. Uh, I think even those... um who are on the remain side, time alone isn't going to fix this. So understanding what would the terms and conditions of the deal be is still paramount. Um, again, you know what I find really interesting is I travel all over the world, and what I'm hearing from investors and business people all over the world is they see Britain as a very dynamic economy. Uh, it remains at the cutting edge of things like artificial intelligence, the creative mm. industries, manufacturing, which is an area I'm personally in, I can see how powerful Britain is in that space. And by the way, every time sterling falls, Britain becomes more competitive and the assets here become less expensive. So the whole rest of the world's going, well, we would like to do more business with Britain. Uh, And the EU saying, well, we don't want to unless we get the deal our way. And I don't know, it's very interesting how the British are so focused on this and the whole rest of the world's like, what? Like, we just want to work with you guys. Like, whatever, you know, it's very local as an issue for the rest of the world. Yeah,
0: but it, but every so often, it does actually throw up some very entertaining chapters. We had one early this <laughs> evening, in fact, when the opposition leader, Jeremy Corbyn, he represents the Labour Party. He actually said, yep, my party is going to back a second referendum. I can tell by the look on your face, Jeffrey, you're not impressed with that. <laughs> well, off
1: we go. I mean, so clearly, to a lot, of, a lot of well, a lot of people in the Labour Party are going to be quite upset about this. And so, you know, it has taken a bit of guts. It's taken time, but it's also taken guts for for Jeremy Corbyn to come out and and defend this position. Um, one wonders whether he actually supports it or actually hopes it, it will materialize. Um, and it's totally possible if he tables this amendment, he might get conservatives supporting um a, a second referendum. Um. Now, I think that what's most likely to happen is that we will extend Article 50 in some form or another. But clearly, Theresa May, the prime minister, doesn't want this to happen. She's trying to wait until as late as possible um, so that she can... Put it to members of parliament, either you have my deal or you have the terror of no Brexit.
0: Yeah, so that's so the strategy game that she's playing here, that, you know, the hard Brexiteers, are going to end up supporting her because, OK, we may not like your deal, but the idea of an extension of Article 50, come on, that's like forcing
2: us to drink raw egg. <laughs> mm. Well, and I also find it very interesting, this definition of a hard Brexit must be chaotic. Uh, And I'm not at all convinced that that's the case. Mm.
0: Uh, I guess it's the worry that businesses feel that they haven't had time to prepare. Yeah. And this possibility that things could get stuck in ports or on roads and goodness knows what else, other disaster scenarios. No, 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 I
2: I totally hear you. Although it's, again, interesting that businesses are surprised when this has been in the news for a very long time. Uh, And it was just their assumption that this would all end in a different way. Um, and I just I just wrote a book uh, recently, it came out in October, where I said the big problem is there's just insufficient diversity of thinking. This idea that Brexit will never happen or Trump will never win or there'll definitely be a deal. Why do we have this 100% or nothing approach? Mm. Why couldn't we be like, well, there's a possibility that there might not be a deal. Let's see what would we have to do to be ready for that scenario. The unwillingness to even think about that Uh, It it just surprises me that the business community who are paid to think about risk have decided to just pretend that that's not a risk. So There's not just politicians who are tribal <laughs> jeffrey, it's
0: also businesses in terms of the way that they look at this.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Civil Service, of course, has been um, trying to ready Britain for the, the prospect of a, of a no-deal, and, you know, economists aren't particularly optimistic about, about the idea of a, of a no-deal Brexit, um, and clearly the Prime Minister doesn't want that either. Now, but what's striking, of course, is that a lot of Brexiteers will say, well, we might rather stay in the European Union than go with uh, Theresa May's deal, um, because Theresa May's deal weds us pretty close to the European Union, and so we'll having to be c- complying with a lot of their regulations and requirements without having a voice in making them, and so we might as well have a voice. Corbyn's proposed amendment um, is an even closer marriage with the European Union, um, and so if it's that versus staying, I think the Brexiteers are, will even be more enthusiastic.
0: Yeah, and I, and I guess as well that, you know, in the time available, if there, if there was an extension, we're just going to retread this same old path, isn't it? Come up with a deal and then try to get it in Parliament. Parliament doesn't like it. Mrs May retweaks it, goes to Brussels to help her with the retweaking, takes it back to Parliament, and here we are again, deja vu.
2: Yeah, not only that, but this divide between the Remainers and the Brexiteers persists. You, you still will go to dinner parties in London where everyone say people who voted for Brexit are out of their mind, uneducated, stupid, don't understand anything. Mm. Then you go talk to people who voted for Brexit and they go those Londoners, they're ignorant, they don't understand what's happening in the rest of the country. That divide in this nation remains and has to be addressed separately from the Brexit issue is how to re-knit in the nation together on core values. Oh, well,
0: good luck on that one. Finally. As you heard earlier, the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will meet the US President Donald Trump in Vietnam on Wednesday for a denuclearization summit. Now, Mr Trump will fly to the Vietnamese capital Hanoi in Air Force One, while Mr Kim will arrive by train. The leader of the world's most reclusive state left Pyongyang station in his armor-plated carriage on Saturday. And in total, the journey is expected to last for 60 hours. So, how is he going to pass the time? Now, OK, I know that you guys are not responsible for his travel itinerary here. The good news is that the train isn't being run by South Western Rail, otherwise it would be (laughs) delayed. But I mean... When we thought about this, how is he going to pass the time? Could you imagine him playing chess and the various pieces have got the face of Donald Trump and other members of the team carved into them with Mr. Kim as a supreme winner?
1: I mean, <laughs> well, America, apparently his father was a, a fan of fine wine. And so when his father traveled, uh, there was lots of wine on the train. So that's one way to pass the time. <laughs> apparently the, the son is more of a cognac lover. So apparently there might be a lot of cognac ah. on the train. But remember, this this slow bullet train goes about 37 exactly. miles per hour. so it is crawling along, so you, you might you might look at the various tortoises that are racing past you <laughs> as you're going. Um, it, it sounds like a pretty boring trip. It,
0: it does actually, but I mean, sixty hours. I, I mean, that, that sounds like torture. I mean, I've, I've never been on a journey of that length. Have either of you guys got got a journey to match this
2: or to come even vaguely close? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I tell you one thing. What I I hope he's doing is sitting with some kind of economic advisor, trying to figure out what the heck the economy is going to do post any kind of a deal. Because if you look at one of the biggest revenue generators for North Korea, it's like literally fake cigarettes, uh, <laughs> money printing, as in fake... Giving out cigarettes yeah, anyway. As in fake money. They, You know, printed dollar bills that are not real. You're like, all the things that actually generate revenue in North Korea won't be permitted any longer. So, then, what are you going to do? I mean, it's striking the a bunch of the train journey, of course, will go through China and then it will
1: go into Vietnam. And I think both the White House um, and the Chinese are hoping that Kim and his people look at Vietnam as a possible model for how um, a, states that had an adversarial relationship might sure. move past that and become an economic success story. Oh,
0: uh, Well, there you go. Suggestions on how to pass a 60-hour train journey. I think I'll just stick to reading my Bunty comics from the 1970s. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. Pippa Malgram and Geoffrey Howard, thank you so much for being here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Marcus Hippie, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Teresa Marvulli. Our studio managers were Maylee Evans and Christy Evans, who I'm assured are not related. More music next at 1900 Hours. It's the Monocle Culture Show, and we have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200.